0: welcome to a very special bonus episode of bring back v10s which we've put together with a little help from you our audience in the past you've probably heard us refer to watching back some of the classic races we've talked about on the f1 tv app and i'm always very careful to point out that we're not being paid to promote f1 tv we just flag it up because as fans of f1's history we get quite a lot out of watching it back Well, this episode is coming to you in association with F1 TV, so we decided we would compile a list of 10 races we recommend you should watch back on the app. F1 TV now has over 1,600 hours of F1 footage, old and new, available to watch. And unsurprisingly, here on Bring Back V10s, we're focusing on the archive. We often get questions from our audience using the hashtag Bring Back V10s, asking for recommendations of old races to go back and watch. So we're here now to give you 10 of them. Joining me, Glenn Freeman, to talk through the 10 races we've selected are Ed Straw, Mark Hughes, and Matt Beer. Now, Ed, there's no traditional opening question this time, but I will pick up on something you sent me the other day when I said we were doing this podcast. Because when you found out we had to do this, you claimed you were going to watch every race in the F1 TV archive to prepare. So did you manage that?
1: Yes, sadly, I'm not quite there yet, time being what it is. I will get there in the end, but it's 1,600 hours, I think you mentioned. It takes a while to get through, and I don't help myself because I watch the races, I then have to dig through all the various materials related to it, lap times, coverage from the time to satisfy my desire to understand it. So it's it's a long, old process.
0: And Mark, you're always keen to revisit your personal archive of written material from the time around any races we discuss on Bring Back V10s, but this time you've had to squeeze that in between back-to-back grand prixs in the current season but when you normally look back through the coverage of the previous races is that is that a pleasure or a chore it's often a pleasure of rediscovery um either either through age or, or my excuse through
2: having worked at getting on for the last 400 races they tend to get compressed so you sort of run out of hard drive in your memory to get the full detail instantly accessible so I can much more readily recall races I watched as a fan than those I worked at and I've been working at them for the last 22 years. So I tend to have to look up detail of what happened, say, at Imola last year. But it's a sort of detail I could just reel off for
0: you about Imola 1980. Yeah, I think that happens to quite a lot of us, actually. Now, Matt, I know much of the bring-back V10s era coincided with your teenage years and you've often referenced in the past whatever opinions you'd formed about various people and things going on in F1 during that time so can we expect more flashbacks to what your younger self thought of these races as well
3: completely you're just getting 15 16 year old matt in this recording it's the period i fell in love with f1 then got very cross with it very quickly because i decided i preferred it preferred IndyCar, and then realized it wasn't so bad after all so it it makes for quite an opinionated mix
0: well that's going to be fun as we rattle through these 10 races then before we begin we'll just explain how we came up with our list of 10 The four of us have picked one race each, and then the rest of the list was made up of choices put forward by people who are part of the new members club we have here at the race. Members can sign up to get all sorts of exclusive benefits, ranging from unlimited free access to our website, uh, to special offers, discounts and experiences. There will also be exclusive podcasts, such as where you can put questions to our experts like Gary Anderson And you'll get early access to some of our podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, which you can listen to ad-free as well. There's all kinds of other benefits to joining the Members Club, and you can find out more by going to the-race.com forward slash Members Club. So we'll start with one of those suggestions that came from our members, and we had multiple nominations for this one, Spa 1998. One of the many people to put this one forward was Alex Garner, who says... Belgium 1998, drama from start to finish, and a great win for Jordan and Damon Hill. Now, Matt, I should say, as with all of these classic races, Spa 98 will get its own episode in the future, so we'll do the short version now. Where on earth do you want to start with, recalling this one?
3: It's not so much a race as a series of explosive events. It's, it's not one that had a huge amount of wheel-to-wheel racing in it, although there were some moments of that, but it's it's kind of a series of crashes, setting up a narrative from the Enormous collision at the start that involved nearly every single driver, um, hacking in uh, his title hopes, unraveling a little bit at the restart, and then through it all via Schumacher plowing into a lap to David Coulthard and ripping a wheel off and skating back to the pits and then threatening to kill Coulthard in the pits. Through it all, Jordan emerges with this incredible one too. So this is worth watching as much as anything. Yes, the crashes, but also all the emotion of the Jordan story coming to fruition like this. And the thing that makes it even more special, obviously Jordan was getting better and better through the 1990s, but just six weeks before this race, Jordan was on zero points for the year it's it's massive signing of Damon Hill as the final piece and its jigsaw was backfiring there was tension in the team but with what Hill was trying to bring from Williams and um, what the team thought about that the move from Peugeot to Mugen Honda been a backward step for power the card needed kind of proper deciphering in a way that Gar Anderson has talked about quite a lot um, on the on the race and then after a, a breakthrough around Hockenheim time earlier in the month. Okay, this is a wet weather win for Hill, but he qualified on the front two rows. He was very competitive in the dry all weekend as well. So it's a story of the Jordan fairy tale coming true uh, via some of the most ridiculous collisions in, in F1 history, which um, if, if this had happened in the social media era, would have given so much for people to get their um, WTF teeth into.
1: And this this spa race is a very special one for me because as a Damon Hill fan of the time, it was just a sensational victory for him. I remember being very annoyed with Ralph Schumacher for being irritated for not being allowed to attack him late on. Although in retrospect, you can see why he was annoyed. And of course, that played a key role in Ralph Schumacher's departure from the team in the end as well to Williams with even Michael Schumacher getting involved. So also had a big impact on what was to
0: follow too. Yeah, I think Michael Schumacher ended up paying for Ralph to leave the team, which Eddie Jordan took some satisfaction from because he finally got some compensation for a Schumacher to break a contract. But of course, the forgotten fact of that race is that before the pile up, Jacques Villeneuve had taken second at the original start and was going to hunt down Mika Hakkinen and take the lead up the hill to Lake Coombe. So that's the real tragedy of this race. But let's move on to our next suggestion, which comes from Matthew McCarthy, who suggested a couple of races. And the one we're going to take a look at is the 2000 French Grand Prix, won by David Coulthard. Matthew says, one of the greatest McLaren versus Ferrari battles ever, and probably DC's finest hour. It is one of the first races I remember watching as an eight-year-old, the first season I followed the sport, and even watching it back 21 years on, the close racing between DC, Michael, Mick Hakkinen and Rubens Barrichello is still incredibly exciting. A brilliant race with a few controversial moments, probably worthy of an entire episode of Bring Back V10s. Couldn't agree more. Now, Mark, that's a good summary there from Matthew. And this is, of course, the race famous for DC's uh, hand signals when he felt Michael Schumacher had run him off the road, having also chopped him at the start. Coulthard himself has named this as his greatest race in the past. And who are we to argue?
2: No, I'm not going to argue with either DC or Matthew. It was um, a terrific, feisty performance. Um, a bit like Valtteri Bottas today, DC wasn't always accorded the respect he was due, simply because his time in a winning car was alongside an all-time great driver, in this case Mika Hakkinen. He wasn't overall as good as Mika, but there were days when the mood took him and the car worked the, the way he needed it, or the moon aligned or whatever, when he, when he was unbeatable. And I'd got to know him well when he was in Formula Three, and he always had that belief back then. He carried that confidence more than in his F1 time, I always thought. But Magneto that weekend, he was back in the zone. I'd often seen him in in, in that junior career, and it was a it was a funny old track because it could be miles faster one day than the next for no apparent reason, and it was also hugely tire sensitive. And th- that season, the status of the fastest car was seesawing a lot between Ferrari and McLaren according to the track. But as a, a generality, the Ferrari worked its tires a little harder, which was a boon in cool races, but a limitation in the hot ones. And the McLaren um, was sort of probably a little bit better um, on like over curbs and that sort of thing, so mechanically good. Um, and McLaren really hit the ground running that weekend. It was clearly the fastest car around Magna Co. And it was DC more than Mika uh, who, who found his groove on this occasion. And I think that sort of, sort of set up DC's, um, you know, Mood for the weekend, really, and he dominated the practices. But then he had all sorts of mechanical dramas on the Saturday, and he qualified the spare car. And that little bit of daylight was all Michael Schumacher needed to nick pole off him. Um, and he so he was beaten away by not only Michael, who chopped him, but also his old F three rival Rubens Barrichello and the other Ferrari. And Coulthard always seemed to have the psychological upper hand in his battles with Barrichello, and that so that, that went back to F three, you know he eventually put a very robust pass on him down at the Adelaide hairpin, which was the track's sort of best passing place, really. But by then, Schumacher was like six seconds up the road. Um, but again, we were about to get confirmation, not only of the, the, the fact that McLaren was the the, the 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 better car, the faster car around this track on this weekend, but that DC was really up for it. And he got that gap down to nothing in the next sort of 10 laps. And at the... The fact that at the end of the stint just before the first stop, so Michael looked to be struggling with the tyres, it was, was really very promising for Coulthard because it, it was suggested it was about to happen again and it did. And so when Coulthard tried to move around the outside around the outside of the hairpin, which was I always felt more of a statement of intent, just, just showing Michael that he was, you know, um up for it and in the mood, rather than an actual realistic passing move, because especially when it was Schumacher we're talking about. And Michael was on the defensive. It was he, he was almost inviting Michael to run him out of road on the exit, which which he did. And that's when the finger came out of the cockpit. But it told us that he was up for it. That DC was up for it. That he's in that mood. He'd sometimes get that sort of feisty sort of. Um, scots warrior sort of mentality and um when he when he later made the move it was at the same place but this time he got up the inside and took a bit of inner curb and just grabbed the place and they the wheel banged all the way through there through that hairpin and still schumacher wouldn't surrender the place even though it was effectively already lost and he more or less forced dc to run him out wide so he did (laughs) and he even interlocked wheels a little bit but that was it really he was um he was on his way and uh, it, was a, it was a beautifully judged win and Schumacher later retired and McLaren got a
3: 1-2. I totally agree this was Coulthard's finest hour but at this point after this win he had won three races in 2000 to Hakkinen's one and was starting to look like McLaren's main title hope and it's actually the the kind of the evening of Manu Core is about the only time that applies to the Coulthard-Hakkinen dynamic at McLaren because soon after that Hakkinen who Admittedly, came into 2000 kind of worn down by how hardcore 98 and 99's title fights had been. Hakenin started to find his feet again, and um, his confidence turned round compared to Coulthard's, and it was Hakenin who took the fight as far as Suzuka. Well, Coulthard faded away, um, but bounced back for a 2001 title bid when McLaren just wasn't strong enough to take on Ferrari, which was the story of Coulthard's McLaren time, really. His peaks compared to Hakenin were always not quite when the car was ready for a title bid. The other reason this one sticks in my mind is a very personal one in that it was the same day that Roberto Moreno, a bring back v favourite, finally took his first uh, cart champ car win at Cleveland, ending a wind drought that stretched back to Formula 3000. And I got an enormous telling off next morning for prioritising Moreno's win on the website I worked for at that point over DC's Heroics at Manicor. But I was cajoled into doing that by a um, magazine writer in the office at the same time, so it wasn't entirely my fault.
0: Well, I didn't expect that anecdote, and uh, that's not going to help with the calls for people asking us to do bring back CART. But um, if you if you do want some IndyCar podcast chat in your lives, we do have a, the race IndyCar podcast now, so you can search for that. And from time to time, between the races, where they're talking about the current stuff, they are going to do some sort of retro episodes, looking back. So you not you don't want to miss that. Um, Coulthard uh, did nominate this as his race of my life for Autosport. Um, few years ago now. And picking up on a couple of things that were said there, one thing he did say was, uh, I I put myself in such a zone that day. Looking back, if I could have sustained performances like that across my career, I could have been a championship contender. But history shows I had troughs as well as those high peaks. He also said that he apologized immediately after the race for the hand signals he gave Schumacher and said that was very out of character. Uh, And then he said that he found out He would found out um, a few years prior that he'd actually done it once before when he'd given Mika Hakkinen a finger when they'd collided at Estoril. And he didn't know about it at the time. It was only when somebody showed him a photograph afterwards of him doing it. And as it happens, the race where Coulthard did that is on our list as well. So we'll move on to that one next. And Matt, this was your choice. The 1996 Portuguese Grand Prix. So I assume we're going to spend the next few minutes just talking about Jacques Villeneuve passing Michael Schumacher around the outside of the final corner.
3: That and his pace in the whole race. I mean, for anybody who came to the Jacques Villeneuve story late and thinks of him getting sacked by BMW Sauber or ambling around the NASCAR European Series midfield, watch this race and you'll realise why for a period in the mid-90s we all thought Jacques Villeneuve would save F1. It's it's the fighting spirit he shows where after dropping from second to fourth at the start in the race where Hill could have clinched the championship, he not only pulls that that move off on Schumacher that had so much um, so build-up given that Villeneuve had looked at the final corner at Estoril in pre-season testing and gone a bit like an IndyCar oval corner, think I could pass around the outside of that and generally being laughed at by the team. He, it's not really like an oval pass because uh, you're, you're accelerating from a, a very, very slow chicane through a acceleration zone left-hander rather than being a proper kind of short oval um never breaking momentum all the way past. there is a very slow minardi in the way as well but there's a lot of slow indie cars in that period too so it's not exactly a wheel-to-wheel oval pass the way it was characterized but it's phenomenally brave it did upset schumacher it did lay down a hell of a marker and then of course Villeneuve had a huge uh, disadvantage to overcome having spent all that time in the early lap stuck behind alacey and schumacher to hunt downhill who looked well on the way to the championship Now, after the race, it emerged that Hill was nursing a clutch problem and his car probably shouldn't have even finished. But 16-year-old me, who was a massive Villeneuve fan and really not keen on Hill at this point, didn't care, ignored that and just took that race as confirmation that whatever happened at Suzuka, Jacques Villeneuve was the moral champion. Um, In retrospect, Hill's problem does put it in a slightly different light, but it's one of very few dry races in that period where about a third of the way into the race, you, you can't assume who the winner's going to be. Because the way Villeneuve turns around and pulls that pulls that gap apart once he's got ahead of uh, got ahead of Schumacher and jumped to Lacey is is massively impressive. It has some fun cameos like the McLarens colliding at the slow chicane, and uh, that was a particularly tense year at McLaren. If you read David Coulthard's first book, he reveals just how badly um, how suspicious he was of Hakkinen, and, and vice versa at that period. Hakkinen's ex- expanded on that a little bit in some of his podcast appearances too, and that kind of. Um, manifests itself on track in a really daft collision while they're fighting outside the points um Things did get better when they were fighting for titles, but uh, at times, at times, not much. But really, this is this is the Veal Nerve race. It's the, it's a sign of everything that made him great. Along with Melbourne 1996, there weren't enough highlights in his F1 career overall. But I, I stand by this one as a piece of genius.
1: Well, with Matt channeling his inner teenager, it's a shame that I didn't know you in in, in these days. I reckon we'd have had some great arguments with me being a Hill fan. This this race is kind of in my memory as a as a bad one because Hill should have won the championship and he didn't. But of course, when you revisit it, not looking at it through that that prism of wanting Hill to win. It's great because it meant the championship went down to the wire. And as you say, it's a reminder of how good Jack Villeneuve was in this period. I, I know I don't really like saying this because it just uh, it just gives Glenn reason to uh, to think I'm talking Villeneuve up. But he was absolutely brilliant in this period, regardless of what happened later. He was incredibly impressive, this being his first season, of course.
0: Right, well, you guys can do the rest of the podcast yourself. I'm off to watch this race again, um, having watched it last night as well. Um, but no, this... Um, that overtake is is a big discussion point and point of debate in modern times because obviously um, around the time of the Portuguese Grand Prix, which as we record this, we've just had, that gets shared a lot because it was the last race at Estoril. And uh, I'm going to call out uh, one of our F1 journalists, Scott Mitchell, on this because he, he asked me uh, innocently, he said, is that overtake really that impressive? And it kind of represented the views of the people who aren't that impressed by it. Um, and he just, the feeling, there's a feeling that you, you, of course you can just drive around the outside of a slower car there. Everyone plays that, oh, he's got the faster car so he can do anything he wants. But I think that that shows perhaps a lack of understanding of how much harder the cars were to drive back then, uh, how much more difficult it could be to drive offline. And also how many other overtakes have we seen around the outside of that corner? So yes, Schumacher, was slow onto the corner, either deliberately or trying to give himself a run on the Minardi, who knows? But I don't think anyone else in that situation would have gone, oh, Schumacher's a bit slow. I won't wait and try and get a run on him onto the straight. I'll just overtake him now. And uh, there's a great quote from Schumacher at the time where he said, I looked in my mirrors for him and couldn't see him. And then I saw his wheels alongside me. And the final thing I'll say is that if overtaking a slower car and a slower driver is that it was so easy at that corner. Schumacher would have driven around the outside of what I think was Giovanni Lavaggi because there was certainly a, a pace advantage there. So, yeah, uh, nobody's going to tell me otherwise that that overtake wasn't brilliant. The next race is another one chosen by one of our members. Gabor Mikley has chosen the 1990 Mexican Grand Prix. Now, Ed, this is a race that Alain Prost has called his greatest drive in the past, winning from 13th on the grid. Was this kind of performance vintage Prost? Yeah, absolutely. And that
1: must be why Gabor chose it, because it is absolutely textbook Prost. Weekend on which he really focused on race preparation, which wasn't unusual, but he didn't even use qualifying tyres, I think. But he was shocked to find himself down on the seventh row. For him, it was all about having a car that became stronger as the race progressed and the track gripped up, so it still had good balance when there was that big shift in terms of the grip levels. The great thing about this drive is that he had to make up places early on. He did climb up to six by lap 13, but considering he didn't get a great start, you might think this was some head-down, hard-charging performance. And it was in a way, but it says so much about the brilliance of Prost that he was still looking at the big picture. He was getting information from the team, the pace of the front runners. He knew he had to not root his tyres Because obviously running in traffic, even in those days, it did cause the dirty air problems that weren't quite as bad, but it still had a problem. But all the while, he was able to keep under control of that while making overtaking moves, and he had to make a lot of passes in this race. And of course, all boils down to a battle for the lead with Ayrton Senna, who else? How it played out just shows how on top of things Prost was that day. He did absolutely everything. It showcases intelligence, his racecraft, his speed, his overtaking. And as a footnote, you've also got the great battle between Nigel Mansell and Gerhard Berger to enjoy. Mansell's famous move around the outside of the fast Perel right-hander, a little bit like the Villeneuve-Schumacher move. But it's also worth watching that, to be reminded of the move that Berger did a couple of laps before that in the, the first corner. Aggressive lunge. Mansell wasn't happy about that and uh, he complains about it a bit after the race. So the only downside about this race is the two LaRousses were attired quite early on within a lap of each other but you can't have everything. But this just showed how good Prost was. If people just think Prost drives around and the race came to him, not at all. He managed it brilliantly but he had to take that win. Absolutely classic victory and quite right that he considered it his greatest race and yeah. A driver who won 51 races, his greatest win has got
0: to be worth watching, hasn't it? Couldn't agree more. Let's move on to the race chosen by Ben Wadsworth next. Ben chose 10 races of his own, which is brilliant, but we're going to go with his number one pick, which was the 1994 Japanese Grand Prix. We have touched a bit on this in the past on Bring Back V10s. In our Series 1 episode, that looked at the last few races of 1994, and this is the famous race where Damon Hill drove out of his skin to beat Michael Schumacher in horrible conditions. Now, Mark, the main thing I remember from researching this episode in the past was a line in Damon's book where he wrote that at the start of the final lap, he said to himself in the car, well, he looked up at the sky and said, Ayrton, if you're up there, I could use a hand right now. What sticks out for you about this famous race? Yeah, I mean, that was a powerful thing. He he only um, came clean with
2: it a few years after the event. Uh, But uh, what, what I recall for it is just how um menacingly dangerous it, it, it felt just watching it because um it's you know just an old school track Suzuka and and the the visibility at times was just just appalling, especially in the midfield. Um so yeah, but through it through it all, you saw the two title contenders, Schumacher and Hill, just just rising above everything and having having their own races. the the crown sort of beckoned. And um yeah, so Damon was having to drive out of his skin uh, at the end there, which is when he was asking for Eton's help because he was trying to uh, keep the gap at more than um, I think it was about seven seconds, because that's how far Michael had been ahead of Damon when the race was red flagged after Martin's accident at Dunlop and in the McLaren, in which a Marshall was injured. And we had aggregate timing and results in those days, so I think I think I think that's the last race where the winner was decided by on aggregate timing. Um, and it was such a such a test of character, uh, for, for Damon that the whole season had been uh, he'd already shown that with the, the, that character the, the, the aftermath of Imla when he when we lost Senna, his teammate. But the, the, there was a lot of his dad's character DNA within Damon, which he didn't always see because he's not an extrovert type of personality, is he? But he he's very intensely driven at this time in his life, and he had to rebuild and remake himself so many times after disappointing performances and then put himself back together and come back at him again and the general feeling was he was only in contention because Williams was the best car but actually yeah, that, that yeah I don't think it was um I think quite often the Benetton was better uh, better on race day and certainly the Benetton team with the endurance racing background of Ross Brawn, and Schumacher and Tom Walkinshaw was certainly better at strategy uh, but this was just a straight-off-gloves flight around the, the most demanded track in the world uh, in the rain. And Damon won it, and it was hugely impressive.
0: It is pretty terrifying to watch watch the conditions they were racing in, actually. I think we all occasionally throw our hands up in modern F1 when we get delayed starts or running behind a safety car and there's not that much water out there. This track was flooded, and aside from the odd safety car period and eventually a red flag when that marshal got unfortunately injured, Uh, The rest of the time, they are just trying to float around. And it is is scary to watch when you have that appreciation of it. But that makes Hill's performance to outperform a rainmaster like Schumacher even more impressive. So let's keep the Schumacher versus Hill vibe going with another rain-affected race. And this is a, a race chosen by Ed. So Ed, you went for the 1995 Belgian Grand Prix. And this one wasn't quite such a joyous day for Damon, was it?
1: Yeah, not a good day for him uh, at all, or indeed for a Damon Hill fan at the time. The race is famous for Schumacher winning from 16th on the grid. That fact in itself would make the race worth re-watching, but there's so much more to enjoy in this, not least the fact that Hill had a falling out with Schumacher about the way he defended. There was a phase of the race when Hill was on wets and so much faster and caught Schumacher, who was on slicks, but Schumacher kept him behind for longer than he had any right to. Damon really wasn't very happy with that, but actually, if you watch it back today... It was hard, but perfectly fair. But there's so much more in this race beyond Hill versus Schumacher. Mixed-up grid, Ferrari turning a front-row lockout into very little. David Coulthard leading, but then having a failure. Johnny Herbert pulling off one of the great forgotten moves for the lead after he we went side-by-side side with John Lacey into Eau Rouge on the opening lap. He then went round the outside into laycom So battles for the lead, dry-wet, dry, wet conditions, controversial penalties, Liget on the podium, retro politeness from Schumacher, who gives a a friendly wave to Moreno after lapping him in the 40 course, even a long-forgotten crash under the safety car from Akio Katayama. So one of those ones that the headline of it is great, but also there's stuff going on all through the race that just makes it a joy to watch. I absolutely
3: agree with with Ed on this. Everyone remembers this one for Hill versus Schumacher, Schumacher in from 16th. But those opening three or four laps are absolutely incredible that it's a bit drizzly and then you've got this amazing lead battle with Coulthard, Alessi and Herbert and it felt at that point like this was going to be the race where that, that season's supporting cast got to have all the fun Well, Hill and Schumacher were were way back in the end Herbert manages to spin twice in in one lap just after retaking the lead for the second time which you know it was it was Herbert's raciest two laps for Benetton and it was it was superb but it went very rapidly downhill after that and he didn't even score but if you stopped watching this race on lap six you'd be pretty satisfied and then it just goes even better and again I also agree this was Schumacher got a lot of criticism at the time. This was not b- bad driving from him, really. He did a lot worse at other times with his defence. This is just fun to watch and, and just a little bit magical how he gets that much speed with slicks on an increasingly wet track too.
0: Yeah, it was masterful positioning of car rather than dirty driving, I think. And if you do watch this one back, or should I say when you watch it back, because I'm sure you're going to watch all 10, stick with the post-race coverage as well to uh, to watch the the conversation Schumacher and Hill have in, uh, in the makeshift park fermé at La Source. And uh, if you've got the commentary on, Murray Walker famously declares that that shows what great mates they are. And Damon told him uh, uh, um, afterwards that it was certainly not a friendly conversation. Our next race is another rain-affected one. And this comes from Richard Craig, who has chosen the 2003 Brazilian Grand Prix. Richard says, Fissi Keller wins for Jordan and the Weber Alonso crashes, plus the river that took out Montoya, Pizzonia, Schumacher, and Button. I'll quickly add that this race is on our list for Series 4, which will kick off in the summer. And for that, we'll get Gary Anderson along to explain how Jordan ended up winning this race with a pretty rubbish car, as he was on the pit wall that day. Now, Mark, you were also there. Was this one of the most chaotic races you've witnessed in person? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it had
2: also a little bit of the vibe of um, Suzuka 94, actually, in in terms of the, just how visible the danger was, and and how, you know, you, you were seeing it, it the sport in its sort of gladiatorial essence, I guess. Um, it was I remember because I think the start from memory, the start was delayed a little bit because of the the rain was so incessant and so heavy, and it, the the rivers just run across that, that place because it's uh, the, the contours of it. Um, and I remember. Standing so, looking out the window on the grid, just thinking this is one of the few occasions when it's you're actually glad Um, you're you're not you're not in you know you know you're not an F1 driver you're not in there Um, because it just looked looked uh, terrifying. But um, yeah, it was it was a wild wild old race. Um, Got got underway um, under the safety car, uh, which Barrichello immediately lost the lead to Coulthard. And then on successive laps, uh, Kimi came into the picture. He passed Weber, Barrichello, and then DC to take the lead. Uh, Lots of crashes on the flooded track, and eventually a safety car was brought out. But during the initial safety car, uh, Jordan had brought Fisichella in very smartly to fill up his tanks in the expectation that the race might not go the full distance. And so this way, they might be able to miss out um, a fuel stop and to just get to the end just on that single stop and it was an inspired move as he began making up a lot of places as others refueled Um, schumacher was up into third place and then he went off on the on the river that was coming through turn three and uh he joined a sort of dead car park there but almost collected a tractor as he went off Uh, and then um uh, i think kimmy kimmy then refueled in dc stayed out so he was leading again but his tires were very worn and he was repassed by Barrichello, so there's lots going on. And then Raikkonen and Fisichello was were dicing and coming up together. Um, and then it's um, <laughs> then the real carnage started happening. It started with um, Mark Webber trying to keep his tyres cool by driving driving a little bit off the off the line, and, and an almighty crash at the top of the hill in the Jaguar. And then Alonso, who was um, Really, really on on it, trying to um, make up time because there was a possible a possible victory in the air for him as well. If they got the pit stop, if they got the tire choice right, and he was in the middle of discussing what what tires they were going to put on, and he just he hit um, he hit the wheel of uh, Weber's crash car and had a, had his own almighty accident. That that's the one that brought out the red flag, and so uh, <laughs> Fissy and Raikkonen had just um, they'd they'd just been in to refuel and and then they got going again uh, just as it was red flagged and there was all the confusion about the countback and the official lap chart had uh, said that Fissi had stopped when he hadn't. It was just a long sector time and so it was only in the the days after the race that it was um, on countback it was realized that uh, Fissi actually had won the race and not Kimi.
3: It's one of those races where it, in a way, F one's fortunate that the winner was so memorable and fantastic because there, it so it could have gone so wrong. There were there were moments during the build up when, because the tires weren't right for the conditions, and there was that river running over the track at turn three, it really felt that the race might be called off altogether. And, and then instead, you got this uh, this phenomenal shock winner. Uh, I was watching this through a bit of a haze. I wasn't working that weekend. I was hung over to hell for my mum's 50th birthday party the previous night, even at 4pm that afternoon. Um, and this was just what I needed to kind of break me out of that. But it was also, it felt like F1 itself was breaking out of a bit of a fog at this time, because the 2002 season had been no fun for anybody but a Ferrari fan. There was no sign of That domination ending as two thousand and two finished, and then two thousand and three with some slight rule tweaks had opened with two McLaren victories, no sign of Ferrari winning yet. An amazing Australian Grand Prix, a pretty intriguing Malaysian Grand Prix, and then we get to Brazil and we have this incredible race that almost anybody could have won. Fizzy Keller and a terrible Jordan end up winning it, only being awarded it a week later. And you just thought this this season is going to be phenomenal. This is just what we needed, and and it it pretty much was. Although that was as that was as crazy as it
0: got, certainly. We'll stick with the classic Brazilian races for our next choice, which came from Mateus Carnero. Mateus says, My favourite race of the V10 era and overall is the 1991 Brazilian Grand Prix. Senna almost dominates the entire affair, but the tense final few laps when he loses all gears and has to drive with only sixth until the end, with Patrese slowly catching up and rain starting to drop. The perfect ending with Ayrton winning the race and shouting expletives in Portuguese at the top of his lungs in euphoria. Ed, it took Senna a long time to finally win his home Grand Prix, and as Mateus outlined there, when it finally came, it was hardly straightforward. Yeah, it was all about Senna,
1: this one. Once, uh, once Gabriele Tarquini, at least, had crashed out on the first lap in the AGS anyway. A good example of the benefit of watching more than the, the five-minute version of, of races, because while it's absolutely right that the last few laps were tense, with Senna stuck in gear, struggling to keep Patrese at bay. But that phase of the race was a little bit longer than perhaps is generally remembered. 71-lap race, but that lead battle starts as early as lap 54, which is where Senna's lead peaks at 42.5 seconds. Over the next half dozen laps, Patrese just chips away a few tenths per lap, so nothing particularly special there. Then lap 61, when things start to really build in terms of tension, Patrese gains at 3.4 seconds a lap. Uh, from there to the to the finish of the race and lap 65-66 he's hacking 6 seconds a lap out of, of Senna there's no chance Senna's going to stay ahead but then of course you get a little bit of, of rain and it's the last 3 laps that are really critical uh, Senna had a 5.5 second lead with 3 laps to go so looked like he was a, a sitting duck but he limited his losses brilliantly and while doing the gesticulating to, to stop the race he managed to win by, by 3 seconds brilliantly managed and although Mansell probably would have won had he not had the gearbox uh, failure and retired, uh, just fantastic from Senna, especially when you consider that he wasn't in a great deal of comfort at the end of the race. You can see in the, the, the famous Senna movie how uh, how physically draining it was. And then you have that that iconic image of him lifting the trophy on the podium when he can barely, barely raise his arm, but just feels he has to do it. So it, it's an absolutely iconic moment because it's that first Brazilian Grand Prix win and although he did win it again a couple of years later it's this one that absolutely stands in legend but I just love the fact that it's this extended slightly longer chase as you start to realize there's really something going on that that captures you when you watch uh, an extended version of the race
0: yeah and, and even the even the battle with Mansell in the first half of the race was a lot more interesting than I'd sort of given it credit for trying to remember it in my head that, you know that at that point we did have the first sort of signs of a flat out battle between those two Senna would eke away a little bit mansell would come back at him so that was really interesting as well but let's finish with a couple more of our picks and mark we'll do yours first and uh, i'm delighted about this one because you've chosen the first race of our bring back v10s era the brazilian grand prix of 1989. this was the first race after turbos were banned and after McLaren won 15 of 16 races in 1988. So I've always considered this race as a a kind of breath of fresh air for F1 because McLaren certainly didn't have everything their own way on this day in Rio. Um, Mark, do you think it was a great way for F1 to usher in its new normally aspirated era?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I I couldn't agree more about it being a a breath of fresh air um, because, you know, we've had so long of of McLaren... um, well, no, we hadn't actually had so long a time. No. We'd, we'd had what seemed to be a very long time in 1988, because they'd, they'd won pretty much every race apart from when they got Senna got tripped up by a backmarker at, at Monza. So it, it, it felt there was a lot of McLaren winning fatigue, let's say, and um, the, the idea of a another season like like that um, just didn't didn't feel very exciting. But um, yeah, the opening race just made it all seem possible, you know, because even though um, Ayrton was on pole, um, and we, so he didn't, because he, he was an early retirement, actually the first, I was watching it through last night, the, the start of the race is fantastic, and this is where Ayrton went out, it, it, there were three abreast in the first turn, Bergen, the Ferrari, Senna's McLaren, and Patrese, Williams, and there just wasn't room, but neither of them backed out of it, um, there was an inevitable squeeze, uh, Berger was on the dirt on the inside, trying to trying to get through, but still there, there wasn't room. And Senna squeezed into him, and they touched. And Burger spins, and Senna's car's damaged. Um, and Mansell was sixth at the start, was third within a, a few hundred meters. And it, it's really just then about right how good how good is the how good is this Ferrari because it hadn't. It was the the new um, the, the semi-automatic gearbox car, John Bernard car, a radical new technology, um, and the. Prime advantage of it, the prime motivation of it was uh, aerodynamic. And but it, it, it just it wouldn't run it and barely ran more than six consecutive laps the whole winter. And um, Mansell had infamously booked his return flights. Still, you know, when the race would still be going on, because he didn't think it was going to do more than a handful of laps. But it did. It, it lasted the whole race. And um, the fascinating thing was just how quickly the the, the thing that really lit up your expectations for the season was just how quickly Mansell in the Ferrari in his first race for Ferrari caught the Williams of Patrese and it was it was just it was nothing he passed Bootson first of all but then just closed down a big lead on Patrese very very quickly um, and it just it made you think wow you know this this, this car really might be a McLaren beater and um, Prost was having a, a typical Prost race he was conservative in the early stages so he was behind but he'd He'd pitted early and effectively undercut his way ahead and after the first round of stops, Pross was in front and he thought, oh well maybe, yeah, maybe this is normality resuming but no, Mansell closed that down as well and passed that and Mansell being Mansell, <laughs> it would have to be a drama because um, he then had to stop again because his steering wheel had come loose. <laughs> And so I put him like 13 seconds down. You thought, oh well, it was good. it was a brave show, but um, you know that that that's that. Um, but no, he did it again. He he took the lead for a third time, and um, yeah, it held on to the end. And it's just uh, such a you know a, a lovely exciting win and it, it's just so many Mansell details you know when he when he the way he chooses to pass Patrese he does it by putting one wheel on the dirt when there's no need to it's just you know a little dramatic little flourish and um yeah it was, it was great it was a brilliant race
1: it's also one of those races that had a few little supplementary uh stories because you had Johnny Herbert on his Grand Prix debut finishing fourth that was seven months after the the accident that almost cost him his feet, just unbelievable. And that that changed the whole course of his career. Without that drive, I don't think he has the long F1 career he had. And also, I like to see a Leighton house on the podium, Mauricio Guzman in third place. Although, I remember interviewing Ian Phillips, who was a team principal, uh, some years ago. And he felt that actually Guzman maybe could have won that race had he been a, a, a stronger driver. So, yeah, it's, it's just one of those ones that there, there's some nice little underlying lower profile storylines, even Derek Warwick as well, who could have been on the podium had he not lost a load of time in a, in a pit stop.
0: Yeah, watching it back, I actually thought that Guzman probably should have had a go at Prost. I know he didn't have the straight line speed for it, but Prost uh, had a busted clutch by then, which meant that he couldn't make a second pit stop for fresh tyres. So he was he was pretty slow. And uh, yeah, it, it was an interesting image after the dominance of 1988 to have a, a McLaren limping across the line in second with a Leighton house and a and a Benetton, Uh, with a debutant behind the wheel, chasing Prost across the line. And then, of course, Mansell slashed his hands on the uh, razor blade like trophy that he had to pick up. So the Mansell drama continued after the race. But we'll get on to the final race. And this is my choice. And remarkably, I've not gone for a classic Jacques Villeneuve race. Uh, I've in fact picked one he wasn't even in. This is admittedly very left field, uh, but I've gone for the 1995 Pacific Grand Prix. This isn't my favorite race of all time, far from it. But the reason I've gone for it is that for me, this sums up the F1 TV archive. Every race we've discussed here is available to watch either as a full rerun or at least an extended highlights edit, you know, up to sort of 50 minutes or an hour. And every race since 1981 at the very least has a 10 minute short highlights package available to watch. Now, a few days ago, I decided to stick a race on in the background while doing some jobs around the house. And I thought I'd try and find something that I've not watched back since I watched it live. So browsing around the redesigned app, uh, I came across the 1995 season, saw a few of the usual classics uploaded in full. So Canada, Silverstone, Monza, Spa that we mentioned earlier. Then I saw the Pacific Grand Prix. And beyond it being the race where Michael Schumacher won his second world championship for Benetton, I couldn't really remember anything about it. And in, in my head over time, I've just decided that he won the championship by dominating the race and, and it was probably quite boring. But I stuck it on to see if if there was something I didn't remember. And uh, it's actually a really, really busy, interesting race with lots going on around the sort of pokey little Aida circuit that was by no means a classic Schumacher gets shuffled down to fifth at the start, sort of bullied out of the way when he tries to go around the outside of Damon Hill. And then he starts picking his way back through. So he has to get ahead of the Ferraris who have made their way up. He has to get past Hill. And then he ends up in a kind of strategic battle with David Coulthard, who's leading the race from pole. And Schumacher only definitively takes the lead of the race when he exits the pits after his third stop. So quite late on. And, And I will say this had all the hallmarks of a late 1995 F1 race, because you've got Coulthard leading from Paul, as he did so often in that little spell towards the end. The Ferraris were higher up than they probably should have been. There's a clumsy error from Damon Hill, which felt customary by this point when he drives into the back of Eddie Irvine's lapped Jordan, when he, he basically goes for a gap that, that isn't there. And uh, of course, in this era, we have to have Benetton outfoxing Williams on strategy. And the other thing that's interesting about this race, it marks one of the early commentary appearances of Martin Brundle, Martin was sitting out this race for Ligier because Agiri Suzuki was was in the car and Martin doesn't say anything when Suzuki spins out quite early on. But of course, Martin wasn't the polished broadcaster that he is today, but he showed a great knack even then for reading the race. And he calls way in advance that Coulthard is going through a spell in the middle of the race between some pit stops where he's basically blowing it. And I think Martin says something like, David needs to pick up the pace. Williams needs to get on the radio because he's losing this race right now. And that's exactly how it turned out to be because Coulthard ended up on a two-stopper. Schumacher was doing his usual three-stopper, be light, push on, get a gap, and then come out in front on fresher tyres. And that's exactly what happened. So it goes from looking like DC will end up back ahead when Schumacher stops to he ends up losing the race. And it's only then that things start to settle down. So... I just thought that's, that's exactly the reason I love going back and watching some of these races. As we mentioned with Brazil 91, for example, earlier on, there's so much more than what these races become famous for. And this is a great example of that. I would have never off the top of my head picked that race to go back and watch. But now here I am saying everyone else should go and watch it as well.
3: I think um, another great example of that from that race is Jan Magnussen's cameo. Um, standing in for Micah Hackenden who was unwell I think he had appendicitis in the McLaren Magnussen's only Grand Prix for McLaren he's so impressive Um, it's such a shame his subsequent career with Stewart didn't work out that way Um, I I totally agree with you Glenn it's it's one of those proper Benetton Schumacher magical strategy masterclass races there's no way at the time you think Schumacher's going to win this when he comes in for his first pit stop he's down in fourth place He's 15 seconds behind leader Coulthard on the road. Coulthard's going to stop twice. Schumacher's got to fit in three pit stops on a track where you basically can't overtake. There's, there should be no way Schumacher turns that into victory, but but he does, and that, that's, um, yeah, it, it, it commands so much respect. Um, but, yeah, I think watching that as a fan, as a 15-year-old at the time, it was part of my narrative of losing faith in my then hero, David Coulthard, because we had the two pre-race shunts from pole at Mons and the Nürburgring, then... You know, this either capitulation, then crashing twice in one lap at Suzuka, then the Adelaide pit wall shunt while leading, and I kind of ended that season going. I I really need a new hero, and then Jacques Villeneuve comes to F1, Alex Zanardi and Greg Moore come to car IndyCar, and and that's me sorted. Always
0: always right with the world again. I should also say one of the great things about watching back this era of race and anything before that as well is is how slow the backmarkers are and how many of them there are. I think that's why some of the races feel so busy. Is that the leaders? they don't get very far into the race before they're in traffic. And back then F1's blue flag rules weren't quite as stringent as they are now. And I think actually races like this are a good advert for letting the backmarkers kind of get on with it a bit more because it does, it makes the race ebb and flow and you've got to be good at getting through the traffic rather than be good at moaning when you've seen that the guy in front's had three blue flags and it's time for him to jump out of your way. So purely looking at the F1 TV archive as a fan, for me that's the beauty of it is you can scroll around decades of f1 history and find something you've either never seen before or might not remember very well and you can often relive it in full there's plenty of classic races we've already talked about in great detail and bring back v10 so go back through our feed find some of the episodes you either haven't listened to or you've enjoyed in the past and then go and see if those races are available to watch as well as well as that redesign i mentioned for the app for 2021 it now includes casting options, so you can watch it on big screens using AirPlay or Chromecast. Thanks to Ed, Mark and Matt for coming along for this special episode. And thank you to our Members Club for the suggestions too. If you're interested in finding out more about the exclusive benefits you can get by signing up to the Members Club, including early access to ad-free versions of Bring Back V10s when Series 4 arrives in the summer, go to the-race.com forward slash Members Club. Until our new series launches, why not get your classic F1 fix by trying out F1 TV? You can find it on the various app stores or by going to f1tv.formula1.com. I'm off now to watch Heref 97 for the 400th time because that is on there in full, of course. And after that, we'll be getting to work on all the research required for series four.